As a reminder, the following podcast is an inclusive space for sex and sexuality where we talk about adult themes, sexual content, and may use some strong language. Today's trigger warning is, in this episode, we discuss mental health, homophobia, self-harm, and suicide ideation, non-consensual kinks, and religious topics. Please listen with care. Welcome to today's episode of My Other Boyfriend is a Vibrator, where we have a no kinks limited mentality to sex and erotica, and absolutely no topic is too taboo to discuss. My name is Hallie Catherine. I'm a sex positivity advocate, self-published author, and erotica enthusiast who's in a polyamorous relationship with my favorite sex toy. Hi, welcome to the podcast today. I'm so excited to have you all here. Welcome. We're delighted to be here. I'm excited. I'm super excited because we have the OG kinky couple themselves, Lady Petra and Saffer, here today to talk to us a little bit about the BDSM lifestyle, as well as a little bit about some projects they have in the works. I'm super excited about one of those. So let's get started. So of course, we ask the same questions to everybody here as a little bit of an icebreaker. So if you don't mind, I'd like to start with those. First up, I think I know what your favorite sex toy is, so I'm going to change it up a little bit and say, what's your favorite kink? Wow. Wow. Our favorite kink? Well, actually, our kink is actually communication. Communication is our kink. Oh, nice. Because kink relies upon communication for everything to begin and end from. So without that, you can't even embark on a kinky lifestyle. We have a bunch of fetishes, but as in the world of kink, it's really all about being in communication with each other completely. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, I would love to get a little bit of the background about, you know, how you got started in the lifestyle and how you kind of got to where you are today. Well, for me, the journey began when I was like 16 and I watched a girl getting caned in my classroom and then she sat on my foot and had an orgasm and I had a heart on it. And I was like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> And I didn't really understand what had happened. I mean, I didn't know about kink or BDSM or fetishes at all at that age. And then I got to go on a trip to Berlin. And when I was in Berlin, I picked up a kink magazine. And there was a story in the back about hardcore kink. And that always kept me going through my early, you know, 20s when I was deeply into vanilla sex. Mm Mm-hmm. And then after I started to have kids, my sex life at home dissipated and I started looking around and that's when I started hooking up with kinksters on and off over the course of the next 20 years. And when I got divorced, which was inevitable because we weren't sexually aligned, then I took a deep dive into kink and I discovered that, you know, my happy place is sadomasochism and I got present to that as much as I enjoyed kink and sexual exploits with kinky women, what was missing for me was intimacy. And so I searched for a partner who was also deeply into kink because I was committed to finding a partner who was sexually aligned with me Mm -hmm. because I had spent a lifetime of sexual frustration. And so 
when Lady Petra showed up, that's where our journey just took off. <laughs> okay. So, you know, at the end of the day, right, I think it's great to hear about that and hear about your story. It's amazing. You know, I think at the end of the day, you know, the most important thing for us is just to find people that are supportive of our journey in the kink lifestyle. And I'm so happy that you and Lady Petra found that. So I'd love to get a little bit of a deeper dive on some of those topics there. So A, why are you so passionate about the BDSM lifestyle? Well, that's a great question, actually. You know, for me, self-expression is really the thing. And sexuality is largely one of those topics that people shy away from because there's a lot of morality wrapped up in it. And they don't really explore what they're actually interested in. And what makes BDSM so cool is that it demands a level of communication that has you actually talk about what it is you want to have happen and make agreements around what there is to do. And you operate in the world of straight up consent. And because your partner and you are talking about what you want to have happen, you actually get to live into some of those fantasies that you have and take on the fetishes that occur to you as arousing. And, you know, not all fetishes are sexual by nature. Some of them are completely unrelated to sexuality, but they still arouse you. But in my journey, the opportunity to have a partner with whom I'm fully self-expressed, who brings out in me my deepest desires, the darkest places that my mind goes in the world of sexuality, and we literally live that every day. For me, there's nothing better than that, you know? And I think that relationship depends on sexuality. I don't think it's possible to have a partner with whom you're not sexually aligned and have that be a really happy partnership. So for me, like, I'm completely clear that BDSM has unlocked parts of my journey that were unavailable to me, like intimacy, for example. That just wasn't available to me. I wasn't able to have a loving relationship because I always felt at some level unloved. And so what kink has done is it's allowed me to really be fully self-expressed, which gives me a sense of freedom and power that I never had before. Well, I know that that is a journey that y'all are trying to help others, you know, along the way with a little bit. And so, you know, what really inspired y'all to get more into the mentor and the coaching? Wow. We were embarking on our own dynamic and we would have conversations every evening because we were seeing almost every day. And so we would scene and then sit down, have a cocktail and really just have a conversation for usually about an hour before we would then, okay, it's time to make dinner. Let's start our evening. And we're having these really deep conversations as well as it was a point in both of our journeys where we were going through, especially me, I think, some huge transformations as sexual creatures. And so we were getting into these deep topics that probably we had never had in our vanilla relationships or ever with anybody. And we got done with one of them and I was like, geez, like that's a really great conversation. We should be recording this for our own posterity just to, so we have a record of like what we're talking about. Like this is like, I would go back and listen to this just to know what we were thinking at this point in our dynamic. And I don't know if you decided or whatever, we decided to record it. 
And then we just on a whim said, oh, well, let's make a podcast. And we were like, totally, we still are somewhat of a guerrilla podcast, guerrilla grassroots. We had an iPhone literally between us on two couches as we sat kind of, you know, right angle to one another with our cocktails in front of us. We turn the phone on and literally record. And then we would upload it. No major editing in the beginning phases because we were still learning that. And it was amazing. And we got kind of like addicted to the idea that this was a way for us to log our own journey over time. And then we got clear on why we were potting, like, why would we do this? And we thought, we want others to have access to what we're experiencing in the sense of demystifying kink. And so we're just going to be on a journey and talk about our own experiences. And maybe someone will see or hear themselves in their listening of us. And we're going to talk to people we want to talk to. Like, hey, we don't know anything about splashing. Let's go interview someone about splashing. Or let's learn this without real judgment, but just to learn. Because that was the whole point. And what was amazing is when we started this, then all of a sudden COVID hit. And then we were in this real, I was working from home. So we were almost a year at home together daily living in our dynamic and potting. Yeah. And we had written a bunch of coaching paradigms. We're both lifelong coaches and we had written a bunch of coaching paradigms to help kinksters discover what we've discovered. And the podcast was at some level a way for us to share that information in a conversational way and encourage people who are interested to reach out to us if they were curious about how to achieve, you know, anything close to what we've achieved, which is like literally daily bliss. Yeah, because <laughs> I know y'all live in your relationship 24-7, 365. You know, it's a dynamic that y'all have like adapted to like all of the time, which is, I think, just absolutely amazing and incredibly powerful, you know, to embrace it. I mean, at the end of the day, like, what do you really feel like are some of the misconceptions that you learned about through this process? you know, as people view your lifestyle or the BDSM lifestyle as a whole out there within the mainstream world? Well, you know, the mainstream world lives in the world of judgment and looking good. And so people are meaning-making machines. And so what they do is they see something they don't understand and they apply meaning to it to justify whatever their conclusion is to themselves. And because we live in a world of morality, because this country and the world at large is largely religiously, you know, suffering from the a moral sort of frame. A lot of their listening comes from a place of there's something wrong. Or fear. And fear, right? So that's the listening of the world to the world of sexuality. That's why, you know, sex workers are picked on. That's why porn participants are, you know, targeted. That's why, you know, the gay community has been ostracized. It's really mostly from a place of fear and judgment. And that's one of the reasons why we pod. You know, we want to demystify sexuality and demystify kink. The truth is that there's really nothing wrong. The truth is that when two adults are interacting and they're operating from a place of agreement and there's consent present, there's really nobody who can step in the way of that, right? And so... I think that's the biggest challenge that society has is that in one ear, they're listening to preachers and religious zealots talking about, you know, creature in the sky who does magic tricks. And on the other hand, you have people 
like us who are literally just being present to reality as it is right now with each other in a really real way. And I think that for me, what Kink has done is it's opened a world of conversation and relationship and relatedness. And it really just brings us to a place of gratitude that's sourced in our sexuality. And I think that that's just not available to people when they start with, like, there's something wrong and I'm going to judge what I'm seeing. I think also one of the things on a regular basis for us, because we are in a 24-7, when I am home and not working, because obviously there is a whole shaming of kinksters, when I go to work, I don't wear my hard collar to work. I have two other collars that are on that are discreet. So I'm collared all the time. But the idea is my true collar, the collar I was collared with in my collaring ceremony, I don't wear because, not because I'm ashamed, not even because I worry about being harassed. But the problem is it's, there's a huge prejudice. And we've talked to quite a few kinksters, even in like the gay community, about their transition and their pathway to where they are now. And we've talked about the relation of how the trans community is moving through that similarly. And I think the last group, and I don't want to jump ahead of asexuals or anyone else, but I think there is something to be said that kinksters are still in the shame area. And so like, I always laugh because I don't really care what people think. And I'll have my hard collar on through a three or four day weekend or a weekend normally. And I go shopping. Oh, goodness. If the collar with the ring is exposed, the first thing people think, you know, as you're walking to the stores, they get a lot of gasping and stares as if someone's supposed to attach a leash to that and lead me around. Yet they just make that jump in their own head. So I always laugh and say something like, I don't want to scare the natives. So I pull the collar around so that the ring is in the back of my neck and that I have the collar still on. And I think even so I still get looks, but the idea is it's like seeing two men holding hands. And the first thing people think jump to is, Oh, that's a gay couple. They have no idea if that's a father and son or two brothers. They just make the jump because people are uncomfortable with what they don't know. So people see me in a collar and make a jump that I'm a pet or something, right? Something odd. Yet to everyone else except for Saffir, when I'm even when I'm wearing a collar, I'm a dominant. I'm a switch. So there's no way <laughs> I'm going to beck and call anyone in the market. In fact, I'm going to take charge in the market and demand where are these things and what do I need to do because I'm efficient. And so it's just amazing how we make meaning of things of images we see because that's the context we have in media. And media does not portray kink correctly, for sure. Yes, I agree 100%. You know, I'd actually like to deep dive a little bit on that, you know, if you don't mind, because that's one of the things that we focus on really heavily here over at My Boyfriend is Vibrator is, you know, porn and erotica and romance and some of the perceptions that kink kind of encounters in that field. And I definitely think you see a lot more awareness of, you know, dom-sum relationships, you know, BDSM within the media as a whole, which is great to see the representation there. But I do think that there's a big difference between like accurate representation and, you know, inaccurate representation. So obviously it's a very good and bad thing. What do you think media mostly gets right about the lifestyle and what they tend to get wrong about the lifestyle? Well, there's definitely a shift occurring. We're starting to see more kink-oriented shows occurring. 
but it's largely organized around role play sort of kink sex. And, you know, that's an aspect of kink for sure, but it's really not where we live. Like we live a lifestyle Like we are in a, like you said, a 24 seven total power exchange. And so, you know, we look very jaundicedly, I would say. We have a jaundiced eye when we watch media around kink because a lot of it is titillating and it's shown to be sort of salacious. And actually, that's not how a kink dynamic occurs. Like we have great sex. Like we have really great sex and we have it like every day, right? But that's not our relationship. Our relationship is like any relationship except that we actually communicate and we're actually you know, in agreement with each other. We actually have an actual like intrapersonal sharing around who we are as people and we are in communication in a way that bypasses everything you see in media. I think media, and let's just be gross about this right now and say 50 shades of gray, make believe. And I'm not saying that parts of that doesn't happen. That's not what I'm saying. It's the way... It's unveiled. And I get, let's just say what it is. It's fiction. It's titillating. It got all the vanillas riled up. People are like, oh my God. You know, but they don't really know. It was meant to have shock value to it. And it did for those that weren't within the lifestyle to have yeah, now, shock value. When I see it, it's very vanilla. <laughs> because in my prior marriage, I was doing kinky acts but never felt like a kinkster because it was an abusive marriage and it was a disconnect for me. Now I'm in a dynamic where I'm choosing to be here and there's agreements everywhere, right? And so for me, the expression of my masochism is a very personal thing. It's not laid out by the media that this is what masochism is because that's what titillates the public. True masochists to masochists are all different have different favorites, have different impact loads. And just whether you have a heavier load or a lighter load has nothing to do. In fact, Safra reminded me something of today. And we always see this on FetLife and there's no disrespect to any of the masochists out there, but we see people who every picture they put up of their play is huge bruising. Well, I'm a seasoned masochist for four years now. So I know better now. And I do know physiology and that kind of thing. So I understand how the body works. And the reality is, I mean, he showed me a picture of our beginning play where he only gave me three cane strokes and I'm up to now 15 cane strokes and the heavy, hard cane. Like what he's caning me now is not what he was caning me in the beginning. Like the yeah. intensity is not the same. And he showed me a picture today and my butt was like my whole ass was literally black and blue. So when you see those black and blue photos, it's phenomenal. It is. It's one of those shocking things. And it's really happening. However, those people are not playing regularly. There's a huge period of time. There's no seasoning happening to the ass, right? And we have developed things in our dynamic with our discovery of my masochism and discovery of his sadism as we were journeying together, where we did for a year or a year or more, where were we doing daily maintenance spankings because it helped to settle my masochistic mind. And let's be honest, I'm getting, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of strokes. I, on an average, it was three to 500 at least daily. And then of course there would be occasional moments I'd ask for a thousand 
But I'm just saying this is happening daily. At a certain point, your capillaries figure it out and adapt. And then it takes him more power to create a mark. That doesn't mean I'm better. That doesn't mean anyone's less. None of that means anything. What it means is where your frequency and intensity of play is happening is so individualistic to each couple playing in their dynamic and that there's no better or worse masochist or sadist. It's just really what you're up to. Is there agreement in what you're up to? And is it pushing you on your journey where you want to go? Right. So, you know, when you ask a question like, what does media get right? None of that. They get none of that. They don't know any of that. They they don't share any of that. That's a conversation that you have with somebody who's actually involved in it. Can you imagine if they showed the black and blue butt? Yeah, but they think there was abuse, right? That's the yeah. first jump they would the make. The first jump is like immediately like, oh, that's But trauma. it's not that's consensual. Yeah. How would you let that happen? Yeah. Yeah, so media's got a lot of work to do to make kink workable. But, you know, you're beginning to see, you know, mainstream movies. Like there was a movie with the Wonder Woman movie, for example, yes. where there was polyamory in the movie and there was bondage in the movie. And you got to see some sort of kink in the context of relationship. Mm-hmm. that's like a beginning of that was the closest I've seen well, yeah that's a beginning of like media beginning to understand what where kink lives in relationship right it's not like we're kinksters so we're kind of like you know circus clowns for people to look at right it's more like we're in relationship and our sex is very kinky do you think that in ways any media such as porn, erotica, et cetera, can be a great introduction to the lifestyle? I think that, you know, what happens with anything like that is it goes in trends, right? So for yes. example, right now, cuckolding and hot wifing and so forth is a very trendy sort of topic. So you're seeing a lot of like porn around, you know, caging, sensification, yeah, all of that, right? yeah. And so, yeah, so it's an access point for somebody, but that doesn't actually change the reality, which is it's two people interacting around their sexuality, around which they have a lot of stories and they've got to get over their stories to be real with each other and authentic so that they can actually have a sexual relationship where they're fulfilled. Where I think the most people looking for an access point into kink because although I was doing kinky things, when I actually went, and quite honestly, it must have been just in my nature. I didn't go to Tinder and I didn't go to other dating sites. Like the first place I went to was kinky chat rooms that were free because I wasn't going to pay for it. And then through there, I found out Got there was a thing about Fet Life. And I didn't go anywhere else after that. For some reason, in my essence, I knew or didn't know, my subconscious was speaking to me that that's where I needed to find someone. And literally, I think there are a lot of, even on FetLife, there are a lot of posers, posing and performance art, I would say, because I don't want to put them down because they're making a living too, right? Performance art that is using kink as a vehicle. And then there is actual kink and I think you can discern that as a viewer. I think the if you can, as a then, yeah, as a consumer of the kink, I think you can. If you have or have are having trouble, I think you talk to a kinkster who's been on Fet Life for a while, like probably a lifetime supporter is probably the people you need to look for. 
And those people can direct you to videos and pictures and images of real kink. And the idea would be to really see what's really happening in a day-to-day basis. Now, everyone wants kink in different doses. No disrespect to anyone that's role-playing or fetishist. That's their sexual expression, and there's something for that. However, with Saffir and I, when I went looking and searching for Saffir, I was really clear I wanted a 24-7 dynamic. And when he came up with Power Exchange, I didn't really have a reference point for that. But as I understood it with his explanation, I was like, yes, that's what I want. But I also was denying a part of my switchy side. I kept it secret initially. I'm sure he might have seen it, but I kept it secret because I was like, in my connected relationship with my chosen partner, I want to be the submissive because I'm service oriented. That's my love language. That's who I fall in love with. And then my other part of my life, an expression of myself is my dominance. And quite frankly, everyone else I'm a dominant to. And so it was interesting to watch myself evolve in that way just like everyone else who's really a kinkster in their journey of exploration and finding what is their niche. And eventually, you know, I first came in thinking I'm going to win the submissive battle. So I'm going to be a slave and be locked in a cement room and never speak and only be beaten. Right. That was my, I'm going to win it to the reality is I want agency and I want to consent to all the things that are happening to me and be connected to my partner because I believe connection, and this is only me, the connection and relatedness and alignment I have with Saffir allows me to be absolutely the most vulnerable I've ever been with any human so that when I drop into subspace, I'm never going, I wonder what he's going to do to me. I don't know what he's going to do to me, but the reality is I trust him. That's key, right? So the opportunity that kink affords you is the opportunity to really trust your partner. to be Like way more than any vanilla. Yeah, just to really like be present in the experience of kink. And, you know, media cannot do that, cannot show that. There's no opportunity for media to really share at that level, at least in the current paradigm. There's too much judgment. So for me, it really comes down to it's up to us individually to demand more from the powers that be in the media universe to really share what kink's all about. Well, I think, you know, I would love to just ask, what is some of the best advice you could really give for those wanting to explore and learn more to take that step in the kinky lifestyle like y'all have done? That's a great question. And I really appreciate that you asked it. You know, we said at the outset, you asked what our kink is, our kink's communication. And What kink requires more than anything is that you trust your partner. That's what kink requires. And the way you create trust is you make agreements. And so you have to sit and talk and you have to talk about what you like and what you don't like. Before sex. I want to say that implicitly because everyone's like ready to bang naughties really quick. And hey, sometimes I guess that's fine. I'm not wired that way because I'm a demi-sabisexual. But the idea would be, I can understand how that happens. However, in kink, because there's a 
power, especially in ours, there's a power well, exchange. In, in, in all kink, there's a power exchange. Right? right. One person's giving their power to another, whether you're dominant or submissive. Right. You're either taking right. power or giving power. So whether you're dominant or submissive, you have to ask for permission to execute this or that, or you have to give permission to have this or that executed. And then in case of things going awry, because you never know, because you're two separate beings, having safe words in place where you create safe words, because what that ultimately creates is an environment where while we're seeing, if I have a problem, who knows, I'm sick, I'm not feeling that great. And all of a sudden it gets worse while we're playing, that there's nothing wrong for me to then say, I need to red out. And truly, it allows the dynamic to be in a healthy space to say, there's nothing wrong. It's not you personal or whatever. You can debrief later. But the idea is there's nothing wrong, which doesn't create space in the dynamic or the play session and allows you to still have consent. Yeah. And then the other thing I would say is that because kink is intense, potentially, that aftercare is important. Yeah. That you really pay attention to the well-being of your submissive and as a dominant. And your dominant. <laughs> and your dominant, yeah. But, but really the... Dominant seed aftercare, too. Yes, they do. <laughs> in a bottle of whiskey. Yes. <laughs> in a bottle of whiskey, 100%. Or an old-fashioned, if you know, if there you're a cocktail person. Yeah. yeah, but my point is that all of this lives in the world of communication, right? You actually have to have somebody agree to give you their power. You have to agree to honor their safe words. You have to agree to take care of them after the, the experience. And so, you know, the best avenue to safely and, you know, substantially enjoy your kink experience is to be completely in communication. So you can actually be present because what happens in kink is the world stops moving. Like time stops because you're so intensely in a scene with somebody. And present. And you have to be present. You just have to be. So you can't like negotiate in a scene. It's not possible. Well, you know, I just want to loop around here just because I have to ask about it. You know, I did breeze over what our favorite sex toy earlier was. So I would love to turn back around to that and talk about, you know, this lovely thing that you sent me, Saffer, that I was honestly very intrigued by and, you know, spent more time on the website reading about it than I thought, you know, I thought I would, mainly just because I couldn't figure out quite how it worked, but it intrigues me because I like things that I can't figure out how they work. Let me introduce you to the SLUB, S-L-U-B-B. And if you want to learn more about it, go to our website, which is slub-usa.com. We're bringing this German sex toy to the United States. I'm very excited about this. This is probably the most powerful sex toy on the market. It vibrates anywhere from 5,000 to 18,000 pulses per minute. So let's give that a qualifier. And no disrespect to the Hitachi, because I love my Hitachi. But the Hitachi is like- Peaks out at 6,000. 6,000. Yeah. I was about to say, I think even the Theragun only goes to like 650. Yeah, the Motor Bunny goes to 7,000. This is the most powerful sex toy on the market. And it's designed initially for men, although it has applications for women as well. So the backstory on this is that the developer, a guy named Michael and his brother Sandro are building contractors. They were playing with power tools, and they figured out that when you hold a power tool up to your genitals, it feels good. So they, <laughs> so they came up. They came up. With, that sounds like a guy, doesn't it? it? Does, right? <laughs> I like it. So my they came my up first with thought. a power tool for men. Yeah. Yeah. 
actually, the backstory is really funny because when he first developed it, he used a reciprocating saw. Oh, and, my God. I can't even imagine what that motion. <laughs> like what you do about putting your junk in a reciprocating saw attachment. Right. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, he figured out the materials and he designed it. And he got patent protection and he built a device that's actually the first real vibrator for man. And actually, it's amazing because we learned about it from a dominatrix in yeah. England, Mistress Diana von Reg, And she said, quote, it'll make even the most impotent man ejaculate. And I heard that. And I was like, wow, that's pretty interesting, right? That's pretty interesting because I have a medical background. I'm like, that's fascinating. And so I started talking to the developer and we arranged to get the American and Canadian rights for this product. So it's actually going to be arriving in the U.S. in the next couple of weeks, and we'll be able to start distributing it, which is very exciting. Yeah, and I remember telling Saffer when we were playing with Itachi, because like he would offer, we've tried things like the Wii Vibe and other things, and I'm always like, yeah, okay, but it really takes a Hitachi to do it. And that's just me. I get that I would have loved to be the woman that could take the lipstick vibrator and Lily just put it on me and go, oh, I'm coming, but that never happened. I needed big power, like plug in the wall power. And with Hitachi, it's textbook. I can like make myself come on cue. So when this thing came along, right before this came along, actually, I was saying to Saffer, you know, my big push has always been when I went to different, because actually as a vanilla, I went to some kinky shows. And I remember walking the trade shows and saying, you know, basically, here's all these vibrators, the rabbit and this. And I would say under my breath, that's shit because it won't do anything like the Hitachi. I mean, I go up to write to the person and say, can this vibrate as hard as the Hitachi? If it can't, it's shit, you know, <laughs> and then walk away. You know, I'm not going to spend my money and waste it because I had already done lots of money on vibrators thinking this is the way to go because I was in a marriage that was not fulfilling. So I was trying to find a vibrator that would work. And the Hitachi is so big. Like if you have that in your suitcase, everyone knows what the hell you've got, you know? Yeah, it's my arm massager, right? There's, there's no traveling oh, with your back massager very easily. <laughs> I'm, I'm traveling with high-powered equipment. So when I was searching and I had looked and looked and looked, and I remember feeling like the end of the trade show, like, this sucks. There's nothing out there for me. Then I said, you know, it's crazy though. There were hundreds of women's products here. And you know what? I saw like cock rings and ball stretchers and things like that. And I saw a few of the POV type of, you know, where they're using the technology where you use a fleshlight for the guy to jack off while he has an image because men are visual. So I got that, but it was like hugely expensive, like way overpriced. And so I thought, but there's nothing for men. Like there's the simian. I can actually go in, in a trade show into a tent and sit on a simian and have an orgasm. And my partner can't do anything like that at a trade show. And when Slub came along and we learned about it, I was like, oh my God, we have to get one of these because we have to see if it really does what it does. Yeah. And I can tell you as a man, I have like generations of sexual experience. I've never had an experience like that. To have my junk vibrated at thousands of RPMs per second <laughs> up and down the shaft. You know, it turns out there are two aspects to a male ejaculation. There is 
the experience of erection and then there's the experience of ejaculation. They're governed by different nerves. And the reason that men who can't get erect can ejaculate is because the slub actually stimulates the ejaculation nerves, which live underneath the glands, the top of the head of the penis. And it does so in a way that is completely out of the realm of possibility for a person to execute if they can't get an erection. Yeah, this is nothing like, oh, if you did better manual or better oral, you would get that. It isn't that the person providing the stimulation is failing. It's quite literally just, it's physiology. physiology, And the reality is you're watching someone's penis, like engorged to a way that you've never seen. Like really, when we played with you, it's like engorged in a way I've never seen because of that stimulation. I thought, no matter what, whether we go to completion or not, even (laughs) I thought of many things, like even as a fluffing device or even as a, what do we talk for? Semen for like ejaculate for what is it called? Yeah, insemination. <laughs> no, but yeah, yeah, artificial insemination. No, but it's like when you you sperm, sperm donors, yeah. like they give in a magazine and have to manual something like this. Boom, their turnover is going to be quick on getting their specimens. I mean, that's yeah, just takes, over, man. It takes about a minute to two minutes to cause. Oh wow, that's super. Yeah. It's pretty, crazy. It's pretty remarkable. Yeah. It's a, it's an and remarkable and you tool. have to get the person to not fight it because the response is to bear down and fight it. Because that's just a ma- that's just a reaction. Yeah. But to be open to the sensation and let them so go, which I understand now is amazing because I didn't realize this. I mean, I know it, but I don't really think about it. Usually males, because they're so aroused when they're with the right partner, they're holding back over and over again. Like they're holding back the response to come over and over again because they want the feeling too. The feeling of arousal and the longevity of sex is great, right? And then some get to completion, some get past the point of no return, all this, right? But when you're using this tool, it's like, no, baby, this is zero to 60 right now. Like you get to just feel the ride, go to a climax and go. And that's amazing. Yeah, it's actually probably, in my opinion, the most powerful male sex toy that's ever been invented. And it's by It took years for him to find the right product. it It took several years, but it's by far the most innovative, original sex toy that's arrived. This is the newest thing on the market and it's, coming like in two and weeks. it hasn't been the u.s yet it's yeah. only been in europe so you said it's like one to two minutes for guys i just have to ask is it would you say it's the same for women too when they use it i think it is what's interesting is the slub you can attach a different a ball let's just say it's a ball so think of the hitachi head is like round right so you get to attach a ball to the unit the one thing is to make sure we have a ball that comes that lubricate you know acceptable And then you need to attach it and then play with your clit, basically. And it's the same idea as As the Hitachi, but because this is like the battery-operated Hitachi, you can have your partner do it. You don't have to be into a wall. You can, yeah. It's also way more powerful. Way more powerful. And and the impact on her was that she got to a point where it was like beyond powerful. It no longer made sense to go to that level of power. You had to to dial it down to get back to where with Hitachi was. (laughs) So on level one, it's at 5,000 RPMs and level two is around 6,000. And that seems to be like the sweet spot for most people. But it goes up to level six, right? So. Yes. I don't know what that is. <laughs> Diana von Rigg said that she's only ever taken one person to level four. 
right? And she uses it every day. She mostly gets people to be done by level one or two. And she uses it as torture. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so the thing is that this is the first real vibrator for men. The first real vibrator for men. It's really? Nothing, you know, it's not something you stick your cock into and you have to be hard to use. Or you have to sit there and do the, the basically give yourself a hand job. And even if you use a flashlight, you're still doing the same motion you would with a hand job. Yes, yeah, This that. is literally, you can just put to the side and go. Actually, somebody Or have else, a partner yeah. do it, which is a new experience if you think about it. Because men have for a long time have been able to apply vibrators during play to their partners who are at the mercy of that, right? Let's just say, who have let go of, of everything, right? Now men can let go in a way that's they've never been able to. So we're actually taking pre-orders right now at slub-usa.com. So encourage people to, if they're interested, to get it. We're charging two and a quarter, $225. Yep. 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 Very affordable. I mean, I think that's incredibly affordable considering like what similar stuff on the market is priced at. Yeah. Yes, it seems of course. very accurate to me. So. Oh, yeah. Of course, yeah. of course, yes. Yeah, so we're excited. This is going to be huge. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for joining me and talking about the slub. I'm super excited to see it in action. I just wanted to say thank you so much for joining us today and, you know, being here on My Other Boyfriend is Vibrant. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please share it with others, post it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest from me, Hallie Catherine, you can follow me on Instagram at Hallie Catherine Romance, on Facebook and YouTube at Hallie Catherine Romance, and on Twitter at HK underscore Romance. Thanks again for joining us here on My Other Boyfriend is a Vibrator. I'll see you next time and stay kinky, y'all.